Welcome back to Tanakhcast. This is episode 115. We'll begin with a brief summation of Jeremiah chapters 32 through 35 and follow the consideration of Ostraka. We're back in the thick of it. It's 588 BCE. The rebellion is pretty much finished as the Babylonians are laying siege to Jerusalem after conquering the surrounding countryside and pretty much all of Judea before that. Yirmiyahu is locked up in the prison compound adjacent to King Zidkiyahu's palace for prophesizing defeat and ruin, but while he's locked up, he does some real estate deal with his cousin, Hanamel, as proof that his prophetic powers are on point and that he's such a great deal maker. Big league! Big league! Big league! And I think we're gonna make it big league! Big league! Big league! And that's what's happened, big league! Big league! Big league! And we're gonna win big league! But then he turns to God and points out that it's a bit weird for him to be buying land in Anatot while Jerusalem is surrounded by hostile Chaldeans. God tells him that what's supposed to happen is happening. Punishment for the wicked is being meted out, and it's awful. But at some point in the future, events will turn and God will bring the people back to their homeland and quote, I will make an everlasting covenant with them that I will not turn away from them and I will treat them graciously and I will put into their hearts reverence for me so that they do not turn away from me. And the day will come when regular folks will do regular real estate deals, much like the one Yirmiyahu did for his cousin's field in Anatot. <sighs> but meanwhile, chapter 33 continues in the same vein, a potent dose of the bad present with some countervailing tincture of optimism. Think of the desolate, empty streets of Jerusalem, but imagine, imagine, quote, the sound of mirth and gladness, the voice of bridegroom and bride, the voice of those who cry, give thanks to the Lord of hosts, for the Lord is good, and his kindness is everlasting, as they bring thanksgiving offerings to the house of the Lord. David's descendant will eventually return to the throne, as well as govern justly. The Levites and priests will minister correctly. But meanwhile... Chapter 34, Yirmiyahu is charged with telling Zidkiyahu some more details about how things are going to go down. I guess let's start with the good-ish news. Quote, You will not die by the sword. You will die a peaceful death. And as incense was burned for your ancestors, the earlier kings who preceded you, so they will burn incense for you, and they will lament for you. Well, I guess that's better than being decapitated or thrown out of a window or drawn and quartered, I guess. Zidkiyahu, meanwhile has emancipated all the Hebrew slaves. Well, he couldn't unilaterally emancipate them. He kind of proclaimed and told all the slaveholders to release their fellow Jews from enslavement. <laughs> Which the slaveholders do for a brief while, before I guess they changed their minds because they got tired of, you know, cleaning up after themselves and whatnot. In short, they take back their get-out-of-slavery cards and re-enslave all the folks they emancipated, which pisses Yirmiyahu and God off. Quote, You would not obey me and proclaim a release, each to his kinsmen and countrymen. Lo, I proclaim your release, declares the Lord, to the sword, to pestilence, then to famine, and I will make you a horror to all the kingdoms of the earth. Oh, damn! In chapter 35, Yirmiyahu reminds us of an incident during the reign of Jehoiakim when he was tasked with going to the sons of Rechav specifically Yonadav ben Rechav, and bring them to the temple and give them some wine to drink. Yonadav was intimately involved in Yehu's uprising against the house of Ahab in 2 Kings chapter 10, and it seems, based on his teetotaling and nomadic lifestyle, the Rechavites don't drink, and they don't live in one place. So they live peacefully in their tents, 
until the Babylonians' invasion when they flee to Jerusalem and find themselves inside its walls, safe for now. But they still kept their pledge and refused wine. So God says, you see that, Jews? Look at these Rechavites. They received a command from their ancestor, and every generation since then is committed to staying away from wine and you know moving their tents from place to place. But you Jews, what do you do? In every generation, the prophet comes to teach and warn. And what do you all do? You ignore him. You don't mend your ways. You run and chase after other gods. So now it's punishment time. But as for the Rechavites, quote, Thus said the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, There shall never cease to be a man of the line of Yonadav, son of Rechav, standing before me. Here endeth the lesson. I could be wrong about this, and perhaps archaeologists out there who are wiser than I can correct me, but I think that this episode's portion might be the first portion that can be substantiated by actual archaeological finds that explicitly corroborate events described in the Tanakh. We don't have any finds from the period of the patriarchs or matriarchs, nor any solid evidence supporting accounts of the exodus or the settlement of Canaan by the tribes of Israel. We don't have any inscriptions from the monarchy of Shaul, and outside of one mention in the now famous Tel Dan inscription, there is no evidence of David's rule or that of his son Shlomo. The Tel Dan inscription is probably the best known example of an outside source corroborating events in the Tanakh, but there's a catch. It's incomplete, and there are gaps. Find the gap between the train and the platform. This is Westminster. Tel Dan is located in the north of Israel in what is known as Etzba HaGalil, that little kind of finger of the Galilee that kind of juts up along Israel's former border with the Golan on the east and Lebanon on the west. The city Dan is mentioned in the Tanakh as the northernmost city in the kingdom of Israel, and today it is known for the Tel, which American naval officer William F. Lynch identified as the site of ancient Dan in 1849. Three years later, Edward Robinson made the same identification, and this identification is now securely accepted. Okay, so back to the inscription. It was chiseled on several fragments of a black basalt stella or stone slab. The largest fragment, fragment A, was found during the 1993 dig, and two smaller fragments, which fit together and are known as fragment B, were found in 1995. We do not know who commissioned the inscriptions, but whomever did, he was not a Jew. Based on content and cuneiform and biblical sources, scholars surmise that the stella was commissioned by the king of Damascus known as Hazael sometime in the 9th century BCE after he usurped the throne of Damascus from Ben-Hadad. These events were described in 2 Kings chapter 8. Feel free to scroll back in the feed to episode 84 to sort of refresh your memory. Anywho, the portion that attracted the most attention is six letters in the ninth line. Bet Yud Tav Dalit Vav Dalit. As there are no vowels, we can only guess how it was pronounced, but the most exciting read is Beit David, the house of David. So here it is in context, starting on line six. And again, the inscription is incomplete. There are gaps. So archaeologists and scholars have made some guesses about the ellipses. So I'll read it first with the blanks and then accepted suggestions. I killed 
and tea, kings who harnessed eots and thousands of horsemen. Ram, son of king of Israel, and I killed Yahu, son of king of the house of David. So the scholarly take is, quote, I killed 70 kings who harnessed thousands of chariots and thousands of horsemen. I killed Yehoram, son of Ahav, king of Israel, and I killed Ahaziahu, son of Yehoram, king of the house of David. But it could also be Beit Dod, the house of the uncle. So, okay, this inscription alludes to a king of Israel and another king who was killed, possibly from the house of David. But chapter 34 states that Yirmiyahu dropped signs on Sidkiyahu, quote, when the army of the king of Babylon was waging war against Jerusalem and against the remaining towns of Judah, against Lachish and Azekah, for they were the only fortified towns of Judah that were left. So the thing is, we actually have accounts from Lachish of this stage of the war, almost live accounts in the form of the renowned Lachish Ostraka, or letters, and there has been much ink shed over these letters written in carbon ink in ancient Hebrew on clay Ostraka. Okay, a little background. The Ostraka were discovered on January 29, 1935, during the third round of excavations at Tel el Duer, a site considered by archaeologists to be the biblical Lachish. Incidentally, Ostraka are inscribed shards of pottery. Folks working on the dig found a collection of 18 Ostraka under a thick layer of destruction debris on the floor of a guard room in the upper gate. Three more were uncovered later, bringing the number up to 21. The archaeologists credited the Babylonians, led by Demuchadnezar, with this destruction layer. One can only imagine the excitement in the scholarly community in 1935 when this discovery was publicized. Evidence confirming the Tanakh. So, to the content of the Ostraka. But before that, let me say that you can see the first Lachish letter at the Google Arts and Culture website. It seems they have assimilated the online collection at the British Museum. And I'll put a link up to that at thenextjew.com. The letters include name lists, but more critically, correspondence between two military officials in Sidkiyahu's army. They were inscribed in different handwriting, leading scholars to conclude that several scribes were involved. Some of the ostraka were inscribed on both sides, starting on the outer edge of the jar. Though the text is still legible today, only seven of the 21 are long enough to produce a coherent translation. And as they are letters, we only have one side of the correspondence between the two military commanders. The sender of the letters is Hoshayahu. He is mentioned only in Ostrakhan 3, and nowhere else, which is kind of weird. He's addressing Yaush, or Yoash, who is mentioned in only three of the Ostraka. In a sense, these letters are memos where the sender is trying to draw the reader's attention to specific issues. This has been the traditional interpretation. Hoshayahu, the sender, was commander of an outpost and reported to Yaush, the commander of Lachish in its region. Yaush is Hoshayahu's superior, by the way, Hoshayahu addresses Yahush. Letter 2 states, quote, To my lord Yahush, may Yahweh cause my lord to hear tidings of peace today, this very day. Who is your servant? A dog, that my lord remembered his servant. May Yahweh make known to my lord a matter of which you do not know. Hoshayahu goes on to quell rumors about himself. He stifles accusations that he read a letter that he shouldn't have. And he casually mentions a diplomatic mission to Egypt. Most telling, though, and most supportive of events described in the Tanakh is Hoshayahu's report that, quote, we are watching for the beacon of Lachish 
according to all the indications which my Lord hath given, for we cannot see Azekah. Which is to mean that Azekah, which has already fallen to the Babylonians, if you recall, Yirmiyahu alludes to Lachish and Azekah as the last two fortified cities unconquered by the invaders. But these letters also raise some pretty significant questions. First, why are these texts written on potsherds with ink instead of on papyrus, which is the traditional medium for official correspondences? Second, are these Ostraka originals or copies? Third, since most of the Ostraka don't have the names of both the sender and addressee, do they all belong to the same correspondence? Fourth, how can we explain that for some of the letters the text is fragmentary, although the Ostrakhan itself seems to be complete? And finally, why was this correspondence placed in the guard room of the gateway in Lachish if the author is watching for the beacon of Lachish? Does this mean that the excavation site is not in Lachish? <laughs> to the rescue came Yigael Yadin, the Israeli army's second chief of staff and archaeologist who led the digs at places like Qumran, Masada, Chatzor, Tel Megiddo, and Gezer. He had a different take. He argues that the use of the pottery for the texts indicates that they are drafts. Actual letters would indeed be written on papyrus, sealed with the signet of the sender, and sent off. This would also explain the repetition and the omission of the sender and addressee's name and where they were found. Perhaps the scribes were sitting in the guardhouse working on these drafts, but the bigger implication is the place of origin. If they are drafts, then they were written in Lachish, not sent to Lachish which means that the sender Hoshayahu is the commander of the garrison at Lachish. Hoshayahu is writing to his superior Yahush, who is located somewhere else. But where? Yadin proposes Jerusalem. He even goes as far as to say that Yahush may even be one of the king's sons, but that's pure conjecture. But what about the line about watching for the beacon of Lachish? How can one watch for this signal if one is inside the city? This, Yadin explains, is a function of the word El. The phrase in the fourth Astrakhan, Shomrim El, might not mean watching for, but watching over. Yadin's interpretation is based on several references in the Tanakh, specifically 1st and 2nd Samuel, where a similar phrase appears and clearly means watch over. As in the instance when David, who's hot in the conflict with Shaul, is mocking Avner, Shaul's general, for his lax security. He says, quote, you are a man, aren't you? And there is no one like you in Israel. So why did you keep watch over your Lord, the King? Shamarta el Adonecha. For one of our troops came in to do violence to your Lord, the King. And then David says it again in the next verse, quote, you have not given a good account of yourself as the Lord lives. All of you deserve to die because lo shamartem al Adonechem. You did not keep watch over your Lord the Lord's anointed. Look around. Where are the king's spear and the water jug that he was at his head? So Yadin's new interpretation not only explains why the Ostraka are on pottery and why they are in the guardhouse, he also clinches the identification of Tel el Duer as biblical Lachish. That's a hat trick, Ferda. If you like what you heard today, spread the word about Tanakhcast. Send a friend an email to say, Hey, would it kill you to check out TanakhCast? Or even better, write a brief review at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher Smart Radio, or SoundCloud. It's a small thing, really, but it will help other people who might be interested in some Bible learning find this podcast. Or if you want to help in a bigger way, support us at Patreon. 
Just search for TanakhCast and pledge your shekels either on a one-time or monthly basis and receive special blessings from the Most High. I thank you in advance for that and encourage you to join us again in two weeks for episode 116 when we continue the book of Jeremiah with chapters 36 through 39.